Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of PathPod News Edition. This week our host, Dr. Meredith Pittman, speaks with Dr. Nicole Jackson of the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office and Dr. Rebecca Ash Kendrick of the Midwest Medical Examiner's Office in Minnesota about their work and how COVID-19 and the opioid epidemic have impacted their practices. Dr. Jackson is on Twitter at Nicole Jackson MD, and our host, Dr. Pittman, is on Twitter at Mayor Pitt. Now here's your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Hello and welcome to PathPod News Edition. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. This week, confirmed cases of COVID-19 continue to skyrocket in the United States. Many states are reporting record daily highs of new cases and then subsequently breaking those records. Hospitals in Texas and Arizona are nearing capacity for sick patients, and there are no longer any states where cases are declining. Because the pandemic is not merely fading away, major medical organizations are having to rethink what have in the past been large gatherings of physicians, including the College of American Pathologists and the USCAP, both of which will be hosting their meetings virtually within the next eight months. Last week, we were able to discuss the wellness of pathologists in the midst of a global pandemic and nationwide protests over the killing of black Americans at the hands of police. This week, we are fortunate to have with us two forensic pathologists who spoke with me about what they do on a day-to-day basis, how COVID and the opioid epidemic have changed their practice, and why the earliest reports on the, quote, autopsy report of Mr. George Floyd sparked such an outcry. My first guest is Dr. Nicole Jackson. When we spoke at the end of June, Dr. Jackson was completing her fellowship in forensic pathology at the University of New Mexico. She now serves as a medical examiner for Cook County in Illinois, which includes the city of Chicago. Dr. Jackson, thanks so much for coming on PathPod News Edition to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. So first of all, can you give us a little bit of a window into what's different between a medical autopsy for someone that dies, say, in-house, like in the ICU or something, versus a forensic autopsy that you provide? Sure. So there's overlap, absolutely, because part of the role of a medical examiner or forensic pathologist is unattended death. So people that die outside of physician care Mm -hmm. or don't have a primary care physician. So you do still see some of those um, more natural deaths. So I trained in New Orleans and our service for our autopsy requirement to sit for boards were all hospital autopsies. So Mm -hmm. usually those are natural disease cases. A lot of them were um, like stage three or four cancer who died in the hospital. Uh, New Orleans had, um, by virtue of the coroner, an ordinate where anyone who died within 24 hours of of admission to the hospital received an autopsy. And that varies um, by county, by parish, depending on where you live. It's usually more natural deaths. Mm -hmm. Um, the forensic autopsy is more medical legal, and then it encompasses accidents, uh, which includes everything you think accident, like fall from a ladder, fall from a height, a motor vehicle collision, but also drug overdoses, mm. alcohol problems, and then you get into the branch of homicides. So murders are the legal equivalent. We don't mm. use that term. We say homicides, but your gunshot wounds, your stab wounds, um, your beatings, Um, Also, suicides are included in forensics. And then there's an undetermined category as well. Okay. So you just mentioned a coroner. And one thing I didn't know before I went to medical school is that a coroner is not the same thing as a medical examiner. So 
Can you explain for our listeners what the difference is between a coroner and a medical examiner and how that might vary by where you live? It varies a lot. Uh, <laughs> for simplicity, we'll start with the medical examiner role because I think mm -hmm. it's a more simpler uh, profession. So a medical examiner is a forensic pathologist, which means they went through at least anatomical um, pathology residency. Some people do a neuropathology in addition. Okay. So you're a board certified pathologist and then forensic pathologist. Um, and then the structure of a medical examiner is the top dog, if you will, is going to be your chief medical examiner, who mm -hmm. again, the forensic pathologist is a doctor, is trained specifically in this one field. Mm -hmm. Coroner gets a little more complicated. So okay. <laughs> can be a doctor, but most likely is not a forensic pathologist. I think it's extremely rare to have a forensic pathologist serve as a coroner. Okay. So a coroner is more a political position. Usually they're either appointed by a politician, an elected per person, or they actually have to run for office where you have to state, you know, what party you belong to and then the people vote. So for instance, in New Orleans, um, Orleans Parish proper, the way it works, it's an election base. And if no doctors run, mm -hmm. it, anyone in the city can run. Anyone. Anybody can be a coroner. But if, uh, say you have three candidates and two are doctors and uh -huh. one, are, one is not, it has to go to a doctor. Okay. Okay. Um, coroners can also wear multiple hats. So in New Orleans, in addition to um, kind of a forensic pathology role, they also wore the hat of um, they could commit someone mm -hmm. uh, after the PEC or the Physicians Executive Commission. If you're unfit to be on the street because you're a danger to yourself or un others, mm -hmm. that's a 72-hour hold, you know, for psychiatric issues. Mm -hmm. Once that expires, then it goes to the coroner to decide, you know, is that person fit to be released and go back? Oh, or wow. Stay? And then the third hat, at least in New Orleans, they roll um, – or Jefferson Parish, which is basically New Orleans, would be raped. So if somebody was raped and presented mm -hmm. to the hospital, one of the hats they wear is to make sure there's a nursing team there with the right tools to, you know, work up a rape. Very interesting. I think it's kind of wild that you could have a coroner that isn't a doctor. It's um, common. I'd say a lot of uh, more rural areas, too, in general. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's uh, part of the police department or law mm -hmm. enforcement. Interesting. So pre-med school, I loved the show CSI, started in 2000. And I kind of assumed that the people that were working there were like forensic people, and they are, but they're crime scene investigators, which is the <laughs> title of the show, and not forensic pathologists. So, um, you know, medical examiners, as you said, are physicians, so MDs and DOs, and you aren't just working in a lab pipetting all day long necessarily. So can you kind of walk us through what a day in the life of a New Mexico medical examiner might be. Sure, absolutely. So what I love about it, there's so much variation in what your day is. There's not really a typical day. Mm -hmm. um, so as a fellow, it's also different. The way we train here, every single day we are cutting, except for one day you have a paper week. And what cutting means, you're back in the autopsy suite, mm -hmm. cutting cases, doing the exam. Okay. When you transition to an attending in most places, you're on... So I'll be going to Chicago. On average, you're up to cut every three days. Okay. So you have multiple cases in one day where you're mm -hmm. doing autopsy after autopsy, and then you have the next two days to follow up on paperwork. Okay. So a lot of our cases, we don't work in isolation. 
Sure. You know, everything's a system. So we have to follow up with our investigators for more information at the scene because not everyone's been interviewed, you know, mm-hmm. not every, all the data there hasn't been collected. Mm-hmm. With our fire desk, we have to follow up with our fire marshals for their report. Are they concerned about arson? Are they concerned this was um, an intent to kill somebody in a fire? Mm-hmm. Or do they have any suspicion of foul play? The same thing for law enforcement. So we follow up with police departments. Here, we're unique. We have a lot of um, Native American land, which mm-hmm. means deaths that occur there we get consulted through the FBI or through their local police department. So like the Navajo PD to do Mm -hmm. their cases only if they're interested. We also have to testify um, whether that's a pre-trial interview with the lawyers or a deposition to give a statement or physically, well, right now everything's on hold because of COVID, but going to the courthouse and giving your opinion on what happened that caused death as an expert witness. So there's a lot of variation. On top of that, a lot of people like to do research, like to teach. So your day, you can kind of structure it those days. You're not back cutting to do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And when you say you're doing paperwork, does that include not only all the follow-up that you just said, but what about writing these long, detailed forensic reports? Right. So usually you start with a preliminary report, which uh-huh. you start with your pathologic diagnosis. So what you found at autopsy examination Mm-hmm. And then you have to wait for everything from toxicology to come back. All these things, sometimes we do a vitreous screen to see their electrolytes, kidney functions at the time of death. Usually juggling a bunch of different cases in a queue and circling them back around to different cases. And our goal is to complete a case within 60 days. Okay. One of the roles a lot of people don't know we do, we help identify um, unknowns. So skeletal remains found places, people that have lost ones, they have no idea where they went, missing persons. We're part of that. So we consult forensic anthropology and odontology, Mm -hmm. dentistry. A lot of work to be done, a lot of coordination of efforts. And a lot of times, for instance, a lot of times the police department will say, we've identified so-and-so. It's not them. It's actually the forensic pathologist who coordinates this effort. Sure. We identify them. And then we relay that information to the police department that, you know, lets the family know. Yeah has been identified and to the best of our knowledge this is how they died whether that's homicide or natural or we don't know okay that's interesting you're a part of a huge network then of people so going back to those autopsy reports you were mentioning something that's been in the news recently is that there's a difference in forensic pathology about a cause of death and a manner of death for anyone who's listening who hasn't heard those terms before can you explain for us what those differences are Sure. So your cause of death um, is usually either the disease or the injury that resulted in death. So Mm -hmm. whether that is atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease Mm -hmm. or um, drowning Mm -hmm. or the toxic effects of some drug, the manner of death is a separate category. And our categories are homicide, death at the hands of another, suicide, death at your own hands, an accident, so no intention to cause death, mm-hmm. drug overdose, natural, you think of your heart attacks, your COVID-19, sure. and then undetermined. And if you go testify as an expert witness, you have to speak to both of those, yes? You could get drilled about both the cause and that your determination of that manner of death. That is accurate. And so you just mentioned COVID-19. So you're in New Mexico right now. 
How has that impacted the work that you do as a medical examiner? Are you seeing more people who are just found at home or are you having to use different infectious precautions or is there anything that's changed for you? Sure. So I think um, we're very fortunate here. We are one of the few, if not only, but maybe one of few BSL-3 labs in Mm -hmm. the U.S., autopsy suites, so biosafety Mm -hmm. level three, which means it has been built by virtue of New Mexico has a lot of infectious disease threats, including Mm -hmm. chloremia, including the plague, including coccidioides, hantavirus as well. So we already have these respiratory precautions. So that was helpful going into a big uh, pulmonary infectious disease crisis. It's not really a good advertisement for New Mexico. Come to New Mexico. We have respiratory illnesses. <laughs> it's a place to train. It is an excellent place to train. You get to see literally everything. You yeah. Know, you the homicides, but you have these weird naturals that, you know, sure. because you're here, you're going to see that you right. don't get anywhere else. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have four isolation suites, which were rarely used before. So they're mm-hmm. in a separate hallway separate air circulation, separate cleaning precautions. And that's where they used to do the CD, uh, CJD. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Were. So that was rarely used before. And now we regularly use them. Okay. Um, we were kind of prepared, as prepared as any office could have been for that. Anecdotally, I've seen a lot of people at home dying more, especially our chronic alcoholics. It seems to have gone up. People mm-hmm. just drinking too much and dying. Diabetics and other naturals maybe not taking care of themselves the same mm-hmm. as if they weren't at home all the time. So um, we've also seen an increase, and this is anecdotally for me because I wasn't here last year, so I have no sure. comparison other than the fall and the summer. But speaking to other pathologists here, it seems like we've had a lot of suicides, um, oh, suicides wow. specifically self-inflicted gunshot wounds, mm-hmm. and a lot have been in, in an older population, like mm-hmm. a lot of older men and women. Um, some have been younger, some have been related to job loss or things like that. Some have been related to fears of actually acquiring COVID. Yeah. Um, so that's an increase in caseloads, but it's okay. like we've had an overall increase, um, in deaths of despair, if you will. Yeah. That's really unfortunate. And there's been so much focus on the patients dying with COVID-19 as there should be. Um, but I think you highlight a really important problem is that just the the mental strain that we as a country and as a world are going through right now. And you are seeing the effects of that in your work. Absolutely. So. Firsthand in real time. And I wish more people checked in just with their local forensic pathologist or mm-hmm. coroner's office or medical examiner's office. Because just online via Twitter, just looking at different, I think uh, us in emergency medicine and psychiatry, I think Mm -hmm. we have a lot of overlap in patient populations. Mm -hmm. It's been interesting watching them voice their concerns about what if this causes this. And I'm like, check in with your local, you know, medical examiner's office. We can tell you in real time if we're seeing Right, exactly. Can you share with us how you came into pathology and specifically why you chose forensic pathology? Certainly. So I actually started um, in medical school with the vision of being a surgeon. Uh, I really like working with my hands. I like fixing things. Um, I like the human body and anatomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wound up doing a general surgery the first year, just an intern year and really hating it. I just didn't feel like it was a fit for me. So I did a lot of reflection on you know, what drew me to medicine and then reviewing all the courses I took in medical school. I liked a lot of the medical lab-based courses, yeah. you know, everything from histology 
I loved biochemistry, genetics. Um, so I felt path was a good career change for me. So I switched actually specifically to do forensics. Mm-hmm. And one of the great draws of forensics, I feel, is you are always providing closure to families. You know, a lot of people hear forensics and they think homicide, homicide. But the overwhelming majority of cases we do are naturals. Okay. And families are grieving and you get to meet them at this very intimate point and provide closure where they can move on in their life. And I knew that would never get tired. So that's how I got into forensics, long story short. Oh, it's been so lovely talking to you. I'm so excited that you were able to come on. Thank you for your time, because I know you're packing. Thank you so much. My next guest is Dr. Rebecca Ash Kendrick. Dr. Ash Kendrick is a medical examiner at Midwest Medical Examiner's Office in Minnesota. Dr. Ash Kendrick, thank you so much for joining us. First off, I love to find out why people chose their careers. What led you into forensic pathology? Um, I, in medical school, uh, believe it or not, was planning on either doing pediatrics or pathology. I loved them both. I was really torn. I couldn't decide where I would be happiest because I guess my background, I didn't go straight through medical school. So I knew there were lots of things you could do to be happy. There wasn't just one thing. And so it was figuring out, I would be happy doing either, but which would work better with the life that I had hoped to have versus the life that I would have to have. That was part of it. And I Mm -hmm. actually just really liked Hopkins. So I went there and was in pathology. Then I went to the medical examiner's office in Baltimore and I went there for 12 days straight. And on the 12th day, I was still excited to go. Mm -hmm. And I bought books and I brought them with us hiking. And my husband looked at me like I was and said I, I and I was like oh okay yeah I know what I'm gonna do yeah <laughs> <laughs> that is insane you know you're not supposed to like carry heavy books hiking right like yeah yeah but it was interesting and it had good pictures and so <laughs> <laughs> when you think your forensic pathology text has good pictures you know you found your you know you found your calling that's, that's exactly cool. right so Part of it was I realized that I could go, and I mean, what we see, there's a lot of vicarious trauma in forensic pathology, and Mm -hmm. it's kind of a newer, they're just starting to recognize that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I realized that I had coping mechanisms that made that an appropriate field for me. And realizing that I had wanted to do pediatric hematology oncology because I enjoyed that field, and then I kind of went into this one, and I said, okay, this the way I process my feelings mm-hmm. and my emotions fits with this kind of heavy, I guess, traumatic, um, stressful environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I did. I loved it. So every time I went, I thought it was interesting. I enjoyed the puzzles. I enjoyed the people. And I luckily went to fellowship and still enjoyed doing it and still liked my job. That's great. I love that you bring up that there's not just one path for everybody because I think a lot of our residents, when they come to us, especially talking about fellowships, it's like, if I choose the wrong fellowship, then I'm totally sunk. And I really am not sure that that's true, especially if you like a wide variety of things. I think there's a lot that you can do. I appreciate your pressure on that. There is a lot of pressure on that. So I want to talk to you about what you do as a medical examiner from day to day. Um, Just starting from the very basics, like, when does a body come to you? At what point does the medical examiner say, yes, this body should come to me? Assume jurisdiction. Okay, assume jurisdiction. 
So I'm going to speak in kind of what is specific to our region, mm-hmm. knowing that every state and every county may have different answers to that. But there are definitely generalities that you can learn. So the way it works for us is that any death that is uh, suspicious, so for violent, um, suicidal, or unattended, if it's an unattended death, like at home or any concern, then we investigate. And there's actually every state has their requirements. You can go to the CDC and they actually have a nice breakdown of what are considered reportable deaths. Uh-huh. So that's what we start. Is a death reported? And so once it's been decided if it's reportable, so it's in a hospital and it's affiliated with drugs, you need to tell us about it. If it's because they were in a car accident and they die in a hospital, it comes to us, same as anywhere you are. So it's, it's, if there is a concern, it needs to be reported to us. We then investigate. Okay. And that investigation can look very different depending on where the death occurs. If it occurs in a hospital, we may just do mostly by phone. Um, if it occurs out in the field, we may send a death investigator. Uh, there are some areas where your death investigators are actually police. Some of them are actually investigators that are employed by the office. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that uh, it can be organized. Okay. So let's say we have, there's a car accident on the highway and somebody calls us and said there's a, a fatal scene. We'll send out a death investigator and they'll go out and they'll take a look. So those are kind of obvious. So somebody, you know, if it's obvious suicide, we're going to assume that. If it's an accidental death, we're going to assume that. If it's a homicidal death, we're going to assume that. It gets more difficult. So if you have somebody who dies at home, mm-hmm. that is where investigation really is important because lots of people die at home because of natural disease, but people can also die at home because of non-natural disease. Sure. So we somebody to go out there and take a look and help us understand. So sometimes that's just law enforcement. Sometimes it's law enforcement and death investigator. Um, and then we can make the decision at that point, is that a case that needs to come to us or a case that can be released okay. to a funeral home? Um, so that's just for autopsy. So that's saying, yes, I want to see the body. I need to do something with it versus if somebody is in the hospital for you know three months because of a car accident, we may we will not bring the body in necessarily because we won't be adding anything to our knowledge of their, you know, medical problems. Because we're doctors. Sure. The question is doing an autopsy going to add any medical information? Um, Do they need a, do they need a physical exam is a good way to think about it. Okay. So if they do, we bring them to us. And if we feel that they don't because it's well documented or they, someone's been seeing their cardiologist every three months and they die at home suddenly, it's not a, usually a mystery, so we can release those. Um, okay. So it, it, it is a jurisdictional whether we are concerned and do they need an exam or can they just be released. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Do you mention these death investigators and scene visits? Do you ever have to do that or is that something that's completely taken care of by these, by law enforcement, by law enforcement and your death investigators? Okay, so you're gonna hear me here a lot. It depends on where you are. Our office, luckily, um, I am not required to go to scenes. I am welcome and invited to go. We don't really add much because our death investigators are there more and the law enforcement do a good job, but we have definitely responded to scenes. Okay. Needed. Okay. Yeah. I had a question too. Say someone dies at home. How often are you running toxicology screens? How do you decide to do that in those sorts of cases? So let's say there's a 55-year-old person who is dead at home. Our death investigator goes. We don't have a strong 
medical history of, you know, cardiac disease, um, but we don't know why they're dead. Mm -hmm. So if those come in for autopsy in our office, we run toxicology on everybody. If you come okay. through our door, you get toxicology. Okay. The level of toxicology changes. Mm -hmm. So you could just get a very basic screen, which is going to look for your common drugs of abuse and alcohol, or you could get an expanded, which is going to look at some of the more interesting, like frankenfentanyls, um, some of the other new stuff that's out, and prescription medications. Okay. You can also do even more testing if we have more concern for either like huffing, you're going to do a different panel versus uh, novel psychoactive, you'll do a different panel versus synthetic cannabis. So kind of knowing what the, which is where our death investigators really do help, because if you don't tell me that he's dead next to a can of Pam and Blade, I won't know to run the huffing protocol. Wow. So it's, it's knowing what's useful. So we really try and understand what's happening. And I think more people die of drugs than we necessarily would realize because 80 year olds do meth. Yeah. So you don't know unless you look. So we try to be, you know, I guess your equal opportunity toxicology uh, testing. Yeah. Um, just because you look like grandma doesn't mean your grandma doesn't use math. Oh, that's so interesting. It also reminds me like in pathology in general, we're always told you can't diagnose what you don't look for or think about when you're looking at your slides. So that that's very, very true. So while we're, while we're on talking about um, grandma doing methamphetamines, I was wondering, uh, what's it like? There's so many sad articles and there's entire books and 60 minute segments about the opioid epidemic in the United States. And how has that impacted your practice in Minnesota? Do you see a lot of those? Has that changed over time? We actually know that we have had an increase in opioid deaths because, again, we do toxicology, but the number of people who are dying of that mm -hmm. are so big that there are offices who are unable to do autopsies on everybody who needs one. Wow. So you have to start triaging the cases because you can't. The, the appropriate thing to do if you have a possible drug death is to do a full autopsy with toxicology. Mm -hmm. But if you have an office that can only do five autopsies in a day, but you have 15 autopsies and seven of them are probable opioid, what do you do? Because you run out of people and staff and you're only allowed to do so many autopsies a year because you should only do so many autopsies a year. Okay. There's okay. a lot. The autopsy is the short part. That's the easy part. I can do an autopsy in less than an hour. Follow-up to the cases is what takes time. So that's why they really try and limit, you should do between... 250 is the goal or less, um, and you are allowed to do up to 325 a year, but again, it's just for, for being accredited. Okay. So it has affected people, and one of the things as medical examiners we're trying to figure out is how do you have, you have a limited resource, you have so much money, that's it. Yeah. Um, how do you use that money and still understand why people are dying? And one of the reasons that we've realized there's an opioid epidemic is because of medical exams. Because all of a sudden, you have all of these young people who are dying in the CDC, well, the National Center for Health Statistics is looking and saying, hey, wait a second, all of yeah. a sudden, we're having a huge spike in death. Well, you don't want to stop doing it because then you don't realize all of these people are dying of prescription medications. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you have all these people dying of prescription medications. So how do you, where do you put the money and how do you do that? So it is a challenge. Uh, we yeah. are lucky a well we are well taken care of. We are well funded. Um, and so we are able to do that. There are a lot of offices who aren't. 
And I think you're going to see coming up, it's going to be even more difficult because with all of the COVID-19 response, that has affected government budgets. Right. And medical examiners usually are government entities. So guess mm-hmm. what? There's only so much in the first pot and you can only get so much of that. So what do you do? Right. So two things coming from that. You say that the autopsy is really the short part. And I talked to Dr. Jackson earlier, and she was also expressing that it's paperwork. It's paperwork that takes so long in the life of a medical examiner. So can you tell me a little bit about what is the follow-up to an autopsy that actually takes most of your time? Sure. So after the exam, I'm going to dictate what I found. And that's just really writing down, this is what my eyes saw. There are some cases where that's enough for me to decide this is my cause of death, but you still have to wait for your toxicology to come back. Um, In some places, you have to wait for your histology, so you have to get your slides and look at them. Mm -hmm. Um, You may also send out for extended studies to get the heart looked at or the brain looked at, depending. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you have to wait for all of that to come back. And and let's say it's an infectious case, then you also are waiting for your cultures and all of that to come back. That's a Mm -hmm. whole other thing. Um, so when all of that comes back, I then have to look at all of that information, put it together, make sure my report is correct, and then write a summary so that anybody who's looking at it understands my thought process. Mm-hmm. And I, they have to be able to do that in 20 years, not just tomorrow. Right. So it has to be clear. It has to explain why I had it. And you have to be able to defend it. Because usually if you're testifying, you don't testify right away. You're going to testify the next year two years from now, three years from now. <clears throat> so you just don't know. And you have to be able to go back and know what you were thinking. Yeah. So going back to COVID-19, we've alluded to it a couple of times. How has that changed your practice? Did you guys get a huge uptick of COVID-19 patients or were you able to say like, that's coronavirus, the end? Like how did that impact your ME's office? So the... Short answer is it shouldn't affect us at all, but the long answer is that's not how this works. So COVID-19 is a natural death. If somebody has been diagnosed with COVID-19, there is no reason that a medical examiner needs to do an autopsy. That being said, not everybody knows how to sign a death certificate. So one of the jobs that medical examiners have been given is we have been given the opportunity to review a death certificate that are signed out by others and to make sure that they are accurate. We don't do all of them by any means. So one way we've been affected is our Department of Health requested that any COVID-19 death that was referred to got referred to the medical examiner so that we could help the Department of Health track those down. Um, Only because we want to make sure people are being tested. We want to make sure that if they've been tested, why were they tested? If they weren't tested, why are you calling it COVID-19? Sure. And because it's government, the different agencies don't all talk well to each other, but they found that by having it come to us, they could more quickly reach out to the doctors who are signing it that way than if they waited for it to get finalized. So, so we are doing that. So that's actually not even a big one. That's no big deal. Um, one of the things we had to address, and I think was probably the most time consuming, is that we cover 28 counties officially and we consult for 10. Well, all of them said, you're our mass fatality plan. If, you know, 200 people die in our hospital, you guys take care of it, right? Because we do mass fatality. So if they have a plane crash or something, oh, guess what? Nope, that's not us. Um, because 
this is a natural death, a pandemic situation is not our jurisdiction. Wow. Okay, so one of the things I got to do was I got to call all of our counties and talk to them and their emergency managers. Many of them did actually understand, but many didn't because it just, it's not something you think about. Uh, And so we had to talk to them about that. Like what is, how do we come up with a plan? What is your plan and how can we help you? So we are just acting as more of a resource because I understand how refrigerated trucks work. I understand how a mobile morgue works. So I'm happy to answer those questions for you, but it's not going to be my mobile morgue. Right. So that's the next one. So then beyond that, at the state level, our Department of Health, again, was proactive and reached out to us and said, hey, let's talk to you because you have a better understanding of what's going on. Because if you have an influx of deaths, the funeral homes get overwhelmed. And then they can't pick up bodies from your office. And then you get full. And that's just one of the ways. So then you may also have funeral homes that aren't picking it from hospitals. And the hospitals may reach out to you and ask for help. So instead of getting into that situation, we tried to be proactive and, and talk to people and understand where the funeral homes were and what plans did they have? What could they do? Um, so we've been having, we actually just went down to once a week this week, which is very exciting. But we were talking, you know, three times a week. So it's another way that we were dealing with things. So kind of understanding where the flow is and it's multiple pieces and having to talk to all the different people. So that's kind of process. And I'm in charge of mass fatality for our office. So I was more involved with it than I had ever planned to be. (laughs) Um, And then you have to start about about infections. Because when this first came out, nobody was, nobody really knew what to do. You know, we understood it wasn't TB. Um, You know, it's not Ebola. But how do you send your death investigators out to scenes where we don't know what this infection is? Oh, wow. We needed to make sure they were safe because we couldn't stop sending them. Um, And we needed to make sure that they were comfortable. And the funeral homes also called us because they didn't know what to do. And they figured, hey, we probably do. So we had a lot of contact with our funeral homes about what to do. Um, we had contact with, you know, our death investigators. How do they stay safe? Because the decedent's not going to give you COVID-19. Mm-hmm. The person standing next to them who's been living with them for five days and is coughing, they still might, and you still have to talk to them. So how do you stay safe? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's one of the challenges that we have, I think was probably the hardest, is just we were trying to educate and communicate as we got information, which... It, it just takes time to understand the infection. Yeah. We're, we're lucky in that we deal with infection all the time. I assume that everybody has hep C and sure. HIV and flu. So for me, that didn't really change. I just assume you have all of the communicable diseases. Um, and we really encourage our death investigators are supposed to assume that as well. But it's always helpful to remind people that infectious disease is a real thing and they should be cautious. Sure. So just from that answer, it's pretty clear that uh, forensic pathologists don't work in a vacuum. It's not just like you and a poorly lit morgue cutting on people all day. So who else do you interact with on a regular basis besides, you know, your death investigators and during the pandemic, the health department all the time? Um, So we try and reach out and use as many resources as we can. Um, We use forensic anthropologists. We use uh, forensic odontologists. We work with, here it's called the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, but it's kind of a statewide cop uh, shop thing. So they can help us do DNA. They can do fingerprinting. They also do investigations. Uh, so for officer-involved shootings, they are going to take over and do those investigations. They can also assist 
um, our rural counties as they need it. So they have many hats, but we work with them. Obviously, we work with law enforcement. I talk to attorneys. Lots of people. We actually deal with the Department of Health all the time, whether or not it's a pandemic, because we have to work together. Um, I love our Department of Health. They're fantastic. Mm-hmm. Gosh, you know, I, we deal with other pathologists. If I have a question about a, a heart or a brain or something like that, I will always reach out. Yeah, we do. We deal with lots of different people, which is one of the reasons I like it, because it's not in a vacuum. So you're in Minnesota, and Minnesota's mm-hmm. been in the news a lot lately with uh, medical examiner and, and the homicide of Mr. George Floyd. And one of the things that came out of that discussion was there was this whole slew of news articles that were talking about the initial autopsy versus a mm-hmm. second private autopsy. And I was wondering for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about what's the difference between those two things? There were a couple things that came out with that, but I'm just going to take the opportunity to clarify. So the first Please. stuff that hit the news was actually the criminal complaint. And the first findings, quote unquote findings, were what somebody interpreted. So it was likely written by an attorney mm-hmm. um, and with the help of law enforcement, what they understood from watching and, and getting a preliminary report from a forensic pathologist. I give those all the time. In, in most homicides, there will be law enforcement there. And before they leave, I will say, I found X, Y, Z. Preliminarily, this is what we're waiting to find out, and we think this is what happened. You get misquoted. It's, it's part of the job. You know that that's going to happen. You read the report later, and you're like, that's not what I said, but okay, that's what we're rolling with now. So, I mean, it happens in all of pathology. All of pathology. Your yes. preliminary gets taken as a final or not at exactly. all what you said. So Exactly. So, so that was, and that was even before the preliminary was given. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just kind of the, this is my initial point. So that was the criminal complaint. And understandably, people were very worked up about it because of the wording. Okay. So then after you have that, you usually, uh, you end up doing a final report. So I would be considered the first autopsy. So if you were in my jurisdiction, I'm going to do your autopsy. I will do the first autopsy. Mm-hmm. Medical examiners are independent. In general, I can't speak. I am sure there are some terrible people out there and there's terrible people and everything. Just read the news. Um, But in general, we are independent. Our job is to make an independent thought. I'm a doctor. I am first a doctor. So I'm giving you my medical opinion. It's not a legal opinion. It's a medical. So the first autopsy is done by somebody, depending on the jurisdiction, um, that gives you their medical opinion. Second autopsies can be useful. they can be helpful, they can be not helpful, it just depends on the situation. But that in general uh, can be done weeks, months later. So you can have one where they actually look at the body after it's been done, before it's been cremated or embalmed, and they can look at whatever's left. Um, usually they will wait to find, get the toxicology, they'll wait to look at the slides, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. before they give you a second report. So it's just, it's like having a, when you ask for a second opinion. So mm-hmm. you've been on a consult service where somebody says, I think it's this, hey, you look at it too. So it's, basically, it's a similar thing. Okay. Uh, and it's difficult because the, using the word independent autopsy can mean different things to different people. But I think it's, it's more helpful to call it a first and a second autopsy. The first autopsy is the one that gets done. You are the first one in there. The second autopsy can look very different depending on when it's done. Sure. Another question, I wanted to ask you because I, I saw this floated around a lot too is medical examiners use the word homicide and then right. there's the term murder. 
you don't use that term. You don't use the word murder. So what's the kind of thinking behind that? Like, what does homicide mean to you? Sure. So homicide, it's actually had some pretty interesting conversations amongst medical examiners because everybody kind of has their own take on it because it's my opinion. So mm-hmm. I get to tell you in my medical opinion, I think it is. Uh, if I call it an accident, that doesn't mean it can't be tried for murder. So homicide to me is death that occurs after the intent to cause harm or fear. So if someone is trying to cause harm or you know, fear and you die as a result of that, that is a homicide. Sometimes it's simple. Somebody gets shot by somebody else. There's not really a question. That's a homicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what homicide is. It doesn't say anything about whether it was right or wrong or justified or anything. It just says your death was caused by someone with the intent to cause harm or fear. There are some who, some offices add at the hands of another. Some some have different expectations um, or requirements to call homicide. But okay, that's very helpful and. There's also when you I know when you're filling out your forms and writing up your reports, there's a manner of death and there's a cause of death. So is homicide then my manner of death? Yes. So cause of death is why you're dead. A gunshot wound, that's your cause. A myocardial infarction or heart attack, that's your cause. The manner can only be five different things. It can be uh, natural, suicide, it can be accident, it can be homicide, or it can be undetermined. You have to pick from those five. It's the only multiple choice thing I get. (laughs) That's all very helpful and enlightening uh, given the current events. My phone blew up when the criminal complaint came out with everyone saying, what does this mean? I was like, whoa, 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 what are are you talking about? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So it's it's nice to have that explained by an actual forensic pathologist. Well, Dr. Ash Kendrick, thank you so much for talking with us today about what it means to be a forensic pathologist. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. Thanks to Drs. Jackson and Ash Kendrick for speaking to us on PathPod News Edition. We'll be back next week with another timely topic in pathology. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.